0: As we've been worshiping this morning, we have been focusing on God, and now we want to come and hear from him as he speaks to us. And for the next little while, we're going to be in the book of Amos, and I'd just like to read you the first few verses of that, and then some verses from chapter 2. The word of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoahash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. And then he goes into a series of uh, assessments of countries around Israel. And he ends up in verse 6 of chapter 2 with this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, as upon the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Father, as we read that, we pray that you would help us to figure out what that could possibly have to do with us. As we open this book of Amos and begin this series, Father, we just pray that you would speak to us and guide us as we come and explore what your word would say to us this morning. And Father, we pray that it would have very real impact in our lives as we open ourselves to you this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, today we're starting our series of sermons from the book of Amos. And uh, it's going to take us through to Advent. And Amos, uh, you may be aware, is one of the minor prophets, which are minor because they're shorter. There's the longer prophets, the big boys, like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And then there's these 12 books, the minor prophets, of which Amos is sort of buried in the middle somewhere. And uh, for most of us, we need an index to find. But Amos has this incredible story that I think is so applicable to us today. He prophesies in about 760 B.C. So uh, a time when for Israel, everything was good. Countries at peace, they are at peace with their neighbors, or at least they're not at war with them. The economy is booming. Everything is comfortable. If you're one of the elites, it's a good time. If you're one of the poor, well, the times are still hard. But for the upper middle class, the people that Amos is going to speak to, they're setting back in a time of enjoying life and relaxation. And then through Amos, God is going to do this survey of the conditions. He's going to kind of do this assessment of where Israel is really at. And in a later chapter of Amos, God gives him this picture of how he's doing it. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said to me, Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. So a plumb line is just a a weight at the end of a string. It hangs vertically down so you can tell if walls are straight, if they're vertical. And and God is using this image to evaluate Israel. Are things square? Are they built on a solid foundation? And and the leaders are expecting a really good grade from this. It's uh, like I said, life is good. Life is peaceful. All is well with the world. But yet the very way that Amos starts that book, you know, that verses I read, there must have been a clue in there somewhere. It started out in verse 2, Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. I wonder what would happen if God were to come and kind of do that assessment of Calgary, of us. As a church, maybe of us as individuals. Well, we don't have that privilege. God doesn't come and do that. But we do have surveys done by agencies in our city. And this week, the Calgary Foundation released their annual survey of Calgarians. They call it Vital Signs of the City. And it's all about how do we see life in Calgary. Now, not a Christian framework, but informative nonetheless. Uh, Here's some of the basic stats. 50% Uh, 50% of Calgarians say they sometimes or always struggle to afford basics like rent, utilities, or groceries. 50%. 28% of people under 25 feel lonely and rate their mental health below average. 82% of Calgarians believe that racism towards black, indigenous, and people of color exists in Calgary. On the more positive side, of people have volunteers donated to a charity or have been involved in community building during this COVID time. 75% of people rate Calgary as a good or excellent place to live, up 6% from last year. 79% think Calgary is a great place to raise kids. Again, up about 11% from last year. But in an interesting kind of Change from that. Only 59% think Calgary is a great place for seniors to live. Although that is up from 15, up by 15% from last year. So apparently last year was a really bad place to live for uh, seniors in Calgary. But Eva Friesen, who's the CEO and uh, president of the Calgary Foundation, kind of wrote a a review, uh, a reflection on this in the beginning of the report. And here's what she wrote. There are many interesting data points throughout these pages. The mental health issue faced by our youth, our renewed fondness for gardening, the financial struggles so many of us are facing. But amongst all that information, there is one data set we feel is especially relevant to 2020. This year, we segmented some of the survey results by race. And as the data indicates, for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the experience of our city is often harder. Our hope is that the end of this report becomes the beginning of something new for our readers. Reflection is an important first step to lasting change, but our collective responsibility does not end there. We have seen, now it is time to act. And as I was reading that this week, I thought her ending was particularly appropriate for us as we look at this book of Amos. Reflection is an important first step to lasting change, but our collective responsibility does not end there. We have seen. Now it is time to act. And I think that's what Amos was basically saying. He was doing a a similar kind of thing, or at least God was in Israel. And and, uh, Amos was the report that he was giving back to the leaders. And we're going to find that God cares an awful lot about the city. He cares an awful lot about people. And he's about to show us through this book what questions to ask about us in the city. What questions to ask about us in the world. What questions to ask about us in our own lives. But it's going to be this challenging ride because the book opens with the lion roaring and then Uh, About three chapters later, Amos nuances that a little bit. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So this guy Amos, who is he? Well, he was not from Israel. He was from Judah. He was a rancher, farmer, orchardist. Uh, He was told to go from Judah to Israel Now, that's a journey of maybe at most 75 kilometers, but it's like night and day different. If you remember, Israel and Judah used to be one country under David and Solomon, but when Solomon died, the two countries split apart. The northern kingdom, Israel, found their own king. The southern kingdom, Judah, always had a king from the line of David. But they've been at intermittent war with each other. There's just a lot of uh, hatred between the two of them, and God calls Amos, this guy from the south, to go up to the north. And he calls him to go and to give this message. And he goes to this country, as we said, that's in the midst of of prosperity. They're in the midst of this oil, you know, olive oil boom, if you want. And uh, life is the best it has ever been. In fact, it is the best it will ever be in Israel. And everyone is enjoying the boom. And then into this, sort of like a bomb exploding at a cocktail party, Amos comes in with his word from the Lord. Now, Amos was a pretty good communicator. He knew that the message he was bringing was not going to be received well. And so he starts by telling the Israelites that God is not pleased with the nations around them. In fact, the first chapter and a half is all about the nations all around Israel. I mean, everybody likes to hear bad news about people they don't like, right? So so Amos starts here. And in the critique of every important country around Israel, he uses what for us is a unique style, but is somewhat common in the Bible. He starts out by saying, well, for three sins and for four, and then he gives one. Uh, it's the It's the fourth one. It's the tipping point. It's the one that turns God's wrath over, but... We find that pattern in a couple of places. Uh, just for example, in Proverbs three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride the lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, the strutting rooster, the he goat, and a king whose army is with him. Has nothing to do with our passage, only has that pattern of for three and for four. And so. Amos doesn't bother listing the three or the four. He just lists the fourth one. He lists the one that has provoked God's action. And he goes around the compass. If you look at that first chapter in your Bibles, uh, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus or for four, I will not relent. A couple of verses later, for three sins of Gaza, for four, I will not relent. For three sins of Tyre, for four, I will not relent. For three sins of Edom, for three sins of Ammon, for three sins of Moab, for three sins of Judah. Uh, And he's giving a a critique of each of these countries. And so far, he's doing well. Everybody's catching on, following along. He's, He's talking about the weaknesses and sins of the countries around them that they've been in intermittent battles with over time. Everyone is laughing, proud of how much better they are than the people around them. He's listed seven countries, and seven is a sign of completeness. They think he's done. They're sort of lining up to buy him a drink and then Amos completes his tour of the world with Israel itself. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And that's when that bomb at the cocktail party goes off. Because Amos goes on to say why God is angry at the people. And in Amos 2, verse 6, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fine's. Now, most of those are social issues. There's some stuff there about altars and God and that kind of stuff. So there is some religious stuff mixed in, but he will later call them on their kind of half-hearted worship of him. He'll even call them on their apathy about all this. That's all future. We'll cover those in other sermons. But today, sort of an overview of the book, just trying to understand what he's trying to say, just trying to grab the context of the times So we understand the message, but also the context of the book. And the context of the book is simply this. God is calling his people back to him. Now, there's a lot about judgment in this book. If you want to go home and and read this book, uh, or you at home, as you're watching this, you want to read this book. There is a lot of bleakness in this book. And uh, we're going to try and stay away from, you know, getting totally suicidal by reading it. But the key thought of it is that if the people go on the way they are, imminent judgment is unavoidable and a final judgment is looming. So spoiler alert, the imminent judgment is 40 years away in 40 years from the time that uh, Amos gave this sermon. The Assyrians will come and destroy Israel and will take the people captive and they'll go into exile and the nation of Israel will disappear off the face of the earth forever. About 150 years later, uh, the same will happen to Judah and when they come back, they will call themselves Israel, but it will not be the same country that it was. So judgment is coming, but in the meantime, God says, I've been sending these Kind of small judgments. And they're only there for one purpose, and that's to bring you back to to me, God says. He says in chapter 4, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. I withheld rain from you, yet you have not returned to me. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, yet you have not returned to me. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And always in the midst of all this judgment and on the midst of all this stuff that God is saying to the people, the the message is the same. All of this is just to help you understand that you need to return to me. Given all that, As we start this series today, the question for today is, what is God saying to us about our world and our actions in it and our attitude towards it? Well, maybe that's too big a question to start with. Maybe today God is just putting a plumb line against our lives, just as individuals. What uh, is our concern for the social justice in the world? What about our love for God? What about our love for His church? Maybe there's nothing very wrong in your life today as that plumb line lines up. Are you square with God? Maybe it's just complacency. Maybe life is just good and we're at ease. In Amos chapter 6, he says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, both Judea and Samaria. Israel, you notable men and women of the foremost nations to whom the people of Israel come. And I think what he's saying there is it may not be that there's anything wrong with our lives. We're not in any kind of grievous sin. We're not got all kinds of inner motivations that are wrong. Maybe it's just that we've got complacent. Maybe it's just that on this pilgrimage with God, we sat down on the park bench to have a rest and we've just forgotten to get up. Maybe COVID has sidetracked us in our relationship with God and God is calling us to return to Him. I was struck this week by that phrase. God says, return to me. He isn't saying return to church. He's not saying return to prayer or to Bible reading or to giving regularly. I mean, He is, but not first. What He's saying is, First return to me, return to this relationship that we could have with each other, this relationship that's like a close friend. I, uh, I had coffee with someone this week, friend that I hadn't seen for a while, and there was just something very special about being able to sit down over a cup of coffee and just begin to talk. And to hear him tell me about his life and all the things that have been happening. And me to tell him about my life and the things that have been happening. And just to feel the sense of closeness and friendship. And I think that's the picture of what God is looking for in a relationship with us. Sometimes we think it's all about these things we need to be doing. And all God says is return to me. Come back into this relationship of friendship." And maybe that just isn't how you picture a relationship with God. I mean, after all, even Amos painted him as this roaring lion. And he is. And we always need to remember God's majesty and balance that with our closeness to him. I think C.S. Lewis got that just about exactly right. In his books on the Chronicle of Narnia, he has this one scene where Susan, who's one of the uh, kids who comes into Narnia, is in this country called Narnia, this this kind of make-believe world. And she's talking to Mr. Beaver, which is how you know it's a make-believe world. And they're talking about Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in this uh, book. And Aslan is a lion. And, And Susan just finds that out from Mr. Beaver. He says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I mean, I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I think that's the promise of Amos, that this roaring lion, is a God who wants to have a relationship with us. He's dealt with our sin. And the lion that roars is good. I think we see it in Revelation. If you go to the very end of the story, in Revelation, John sees this vision of a scroll. And it's a, you know, a wrapped up scroll and it's sealed with all these seals and no one can open the seals. And apparently John starts to cry because he's so concerned about what's in that scroll. And then it says in Revelation 5, One of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll with the seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. What was described to John was a lion. What John saw was a lamb. And I think those are the two pictures of Jesus that somehow we need to always hold in tension. That the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion who roars, the great God, is also the lamb, the sacrifice. The, uh, when John the Baptist, remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus came to him to get baptized, and John saw him for the first time. And he says about him in John 1, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's this wonderful contrast of images, this roaring lion is also the Lamb who took away the sin of the world, the Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. And I think today what this book is trying to say to us is it's trying to call us back to a relationship with God. It's tr- it's saying to us, return. And I think maybe this morning the, the best way forward from here is just confessing in an area where complacency is robbing us of a deep friendship that God wants to have with us. God knows that if our first love is him, everything else will fall into place. And he keeps calling us, return to me. In the book of Revelation, it starts with letters to seven different churches. One is a church in Laodicea. Doesn't really matter the place because it's written as much to us as it is to them. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. In other words, he's saying, woe to those complacent in Zion. Woe to those at ease who have lost their way with God. Return to God with all your heart, Amos said. Or... As that letter to the church there says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them and they with me. And I just think that's a paraphrase of what we've been looking at in Amos. It's God's invitation to return. He's knocking at the door of our life today. Wanting to come in to have that cup of coffee. To sit down and just have that conversation where friendship is rebuilt. Where he comes back to the center of our life as we return to him. I just think that's God's message for us today. Behold, he stands at the door of our life. And he knocks. And the question comes, will we return? Will we open the door today? Will we start afresh with him? And I just invite us to just take that step, whether you feel it's redundant or not, of just reopening the door, allowing God to come in, allowing us to have this this relationship with him that, I sensed over that cup of coffee with a friend. To have that as an image of what it is to have a relationship with God. And this morning, he just invites us to return, to come back, to open the door of our life to put him first. To have this relationship with him that makes all the difference in the world. So, Father God, this morning we pray for that. We pray, God, that you would help us to see those areas of complacency in our lives. Perhaps those areas of drivenness in our lives, too, where we're driven to do. But we're not meeting with you. Where we're not sensing your presence. Where we're not quietly across that cup of coffee where there's conversation, where you're first in our life. Father God, this morning we pray that you would help us to allow you into our lives, not just as our Savior, not just as our God, as the lion who roars, but as our friend, as the one who wants to have this relationship with us, out of which everything else flows. And so, Father God, we pray, come afresh upon us. As David said, restore to us the joy of our salvation and renew a right spirit within us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.